A reading from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him whose lives forever, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the, end, until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way to the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. The word of the Lord. We just heard Jesus speak of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we just heard the summary of the very good news that you so loved the world that you gave your son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life father you have given us all things you've given us yourself in the gift of your son and the gift of your spirit and your generosity is beyond all our imagining and so we on the basis of your generosity ask you to work in us now to make your truth clear to us. Um, don't let me say silly things. Don't let us believe silly things. But grant us to truly see you as you are. So whatever it takes to get that done, do it. And whatever obstacles stand in the way, remove them. And make us see Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Please be seated. 
All right, um, it's helpful if you turn back to the um, book of Daniel. That's uh, Daniel chapter 12. It's the end of Daniel. Two things are happening today at the same time. Uh, one, we are finishing our series in the book of Daniel. Uh, and at the same time, it is also, as you know, Trinity Sunday. Um, so, as I said at the beginning, um, Trinity Sunday is the day in the church year where we consider uh, perhaps the most distinguishing doctrine within Christianity, that our doctrine of God. Um, Christianity teaches that God is one without ambiguity. God is one, full stop. At the same time, we understand that God, the one true God, exists or subsists eternally in three persons who are equal in dignity and majesty and divinity and so forth. It's a remarkable thing to claim. So we're finishing the book of Daniel. Uh, we've got the doctrine of the Trinity uh, kind of that we're trying to think about. We're going to put them together uh, today in this sermon. And let me try to explain why it is that that makes sense. Um, our text from Daniel, let me be clear, does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity in its, you know, in, in detail. However, the doctrine of the Trinity does explain Daniel in some very deep and significant ways. And here's what I mean. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is a little bit like a unified theory of everything within Christianity. Uh, so if you look at the Bible, and if you take all that the Bible has to say about who God is, and if you start at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, and you go all the way through to the very end of the book of Revelation, and you, you, you compile everything that we learn about God, and then you squeeze it all together, and you say, how shall we describe the God whom we meet in the Bible? You are inevitably going to come up with something very much like the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, you'll have to say that the Bible teaches that there is one God and only one God. And that this one God is uh, not to be identified with the imaginary projections of our highest values, but that God exists apart from us um, and that we have to come to terms with this one God. At the same time, we will find that that one God, as presented in the Bible, subsists eternally in three persons who are bound together in mutual and infinite love. And therefore, at the very center of the universe, we find that there is a loving relationship. And there's something profoundly mysterious about it. And yet the doctrine of the Trinity is, is just the most responsible reading of the Bible um, that anybody's ever come up with. But here's part of the amazing thing. Once you have a clear doctrine of the Trinity, you can then take the doctrine of the Trinity back to the, any particular place in the Bible, and you'll find that all the details of the Bible shimmer with the new insight. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery, clearly, but it's a mystery that clarifies all the other mysteries of the Bible. And that means that you can ask a question like this. How does the doctrine of the Trinity help me understand the particular part of the Bible I'm trying to read and internalize? And so that's what we're trying to do today. We're going to ask the question, how does the doctrine of the Trinity help sum up the Old Testament book of Daniel? We're not going to be able to go into all the details, but we're going to ask that question and answer it at something of a high level. And here's what I want to show you. The doctrine of the Trinity 
guarantees the triumph of justice reconciled to mercy. The doctrine of the Trinity guarantees the triumph of justice reconciled to mercy. And more specifically, we're going to see this, three things. It's the Trinity Sunday, so you have to. Uh, God the Father has a plan for the triumph of justice. Number two, God the Son executes the Father's plan in such a way that mercy comes clear. And number three, God the Holy Spirit empowers his people to live presently in light of that great plan. Let me get into it. First of all, God the Father has a plan for the triumph of justice. Uh, take a look at verse 1 in, the, in Daniel chapter uh, 12. Remember that, the, that Daniel the prophet is living in exile. Uh, he lives in Babylon. He works for the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire had taken over the Babylonian Empire a few years before this. And this reading is the conclusion of a vision Daniel has that anticipates the future. Verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael, that's an angel, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Okay, now focus on those uh, two themes. There's going to be trouble there's going to be deliverance and the deliverance is going to come in the middle of the trouble now those two themes there's going to be trouble for the people of god and there's going to be deliverance in the middle of that trouble you could kind of squeeze the whole book of daniel into those two themes back up and remember the story when the book of daniel opens up the babylonian empire is just raging across the ancient Middle East. And as they rage across the map, they invade the kingdom of Judah, and they destroy the capital of the kingdom of Judah, which is Jerusalem. And not only do they destroy the city, they take a bunch of people captive back to Babylon. And Daniel, the author of this book, is one of those captives. And it's interesting to know that Daniel never returns to Jerusalem. Daniel lives out the entirety of his life living under the oppressive thumb of two empires. First the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire, which overtakes the Babylonian. So the whole book of Daniel and the whole life of the prophet Daniel plays out in one of the worst traumas of Israel's history. Daniel and his people are victims of corrupt, coercive, autonomous human power. And they're living under the pressure the whole time. Now, just stop and just, just internalize this for a second because it's important. Daniel lived in a world where corrupt, coercive, autonomous human power ate up everything else or appeared to. Just think about Nebuchadnezzar for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was the king of Babylon. He's the king during a lot of Daniel's life. And during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it really looks like the man holds all the cards, doesn't it? And he holds all the cards because he is fabulously powerful. Um, in fact, he's so powerful that he could pretty much uh, redefine the idea of justice 
according to whatever he wanted to get done. So if there was a nation that is standing against him, he could just invade that country and destroy their cities and take their people captive and make them slaves. And, and he did that. And he could justify it any way he wanted because he had the power. Or if one of his subjects, maybe somebody in his regime, maybe one of his leaders gets in his way, he could, he could heat up a big furnace, for instance, and uh, throw his enemies alive into those furnaces. And he did that. And he could justify it any way he wanted to because he held the power. And so he could do those things, he could justify them, he could even call them just, because in a world that seems to be dominated by autonomous, human, corrupt, coercive power, uh, justice can end up being little more than a marketing ploy for the people who hold all the cards. And so Daniel and his people, they are suffering under the just the crushing weight of that corrupt, coercive power. But that's where the surprise in the book of Daniel comes in. Because right at the moment when everything seems hopeless, and right at the moment where trouble seems to, 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 to reach a fever pitch and an unprecedented level, and right at the point where corrupt, autonomous, coercive power seems to carry the day, and you'd have to be a, a crazy person to think otherwise. Right at that moment, the God of Israel steps into the story. God of Israel was never out of the story, but he makes himself clear. And when, God, when the God of Israel steps into the story, he redefines the idea of justice on his own terms. I don't know that you remember this. Do you remember how God humbles Nebuchadnezzar? He has a whole humbles him a number of times, but at the end, he has a whole uh, period of time where Nebuchadnezzar loses his sanity for a while. And that's the surprise. See, the surprise in the book of Daniel is not that Nebuchadnezzar is corrupt and powerful. The surprise in the book of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar and others like him are humbled before God and judged by God and held accountable by the God of Israel. Just go back and read the book of Daniel later on. And what you'll see is that God intervenes to deliver his people and to judge evil, and that God does those two things usually with the same act. And that pattern repeats a bunch of times in Daniel's life. But now come to our passage, because our passage adds a crucial element that we need to not miss. Our passage tells us that those little deliverances and those little judgments that happened in the context of Daniel's life are rehearsals for a bigger deliverance and a bigger judgment that's going to happen at the end of time. Look back halfway through verse 1. But at that time, in the midst of the terrible trouble, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of death shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, Emmanuel, that is a remarkably important verse in the whole storyline of the Bible. Here's why. Uh, that verse is the first 
not the last, but the first very clear indicator of two extraordinarily important doctrines. The doctrine of the resurrection, that death is not the end, but that there's a coming back to life that's part of the story. And number two, the idea that there will be a judgment that God will hold all of us ultimately accountable to him in the end. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And Emmanuel, if that doesn't send a chill down your spine, something's wrong. It's a really sober thing. Because it's saying that every one of us is going to have to stand before God, even after death. And there's going to be everlasting life on one hand and everlasting contempt on the other. Sober, yeah? I want you to know that it's also very, very good. Why? Why are these ideas good? Well, lots, lots of reasons. Here's one. It means that justice is a real thing, defined by God himself. It means that justice is not the marketing ploy of the powerful who happened to be in control at the time. It means that justice is not finally rooted in human autonomous power. It means that justice is not even rooted in the consensus of a culture within a particular moment. It means that justice is grounded in something that is bigger than any of us and transcends all of us. It means that justice, the story of the unfolding of justice, is an outward expression of God's inner moral character. That God is, on the one hand, perfectly committed to moral goodness, and that part of what that means is that God is perfectly hostile to evil and therefore it means that you will never find a greater critique of human power than the God that you find in Holy Scripture. God the Father assures us that the day will come when we find out that all of history has been a long critique of human autonomous corrupt power. He'll hold us accountable in the end. And that's how we know that evil will not have the final word. And that's quite a good thing. But now we need to keep on moving because there's more to it. God the Father has a plan for the final triumph of justice as God defines it. But then God the Son executes that plan of the triumph of justice, but does it in such a way that you see that mercy was embedded within it from the beginning. Let me explain. So uh, remember that the second half of the book of Daniel is all about Daniel's visions about the future. He has a bunch of them. In all of them, God's people suffer badly. And it's not just that, people, that God's people suffer. It's that there seems to be a connection between the resurrection, the final judgment, and the suffering of God's people. Here's what I mean. Look at verse uh, 7. Halfway through the verse, an angel speaks to Daniel and says, 
when the shattering of the power of the of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. Now, do you see what that means? What that means is that the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the shattering of the power of the holy people, their suffering, are all related to each other. Now, why does that matter? Well, it appears that that was a message that went deep into the mind of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, Jesus, we know, was massively influenced by the book of Daniel. He refers to Daniel all the time. And in particular, Jesus uses, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. You can see that in our gospel reading. And the phrase, the Son of Man, almost certainly comes from Daniel chapter 7. But Jesus also regularly talks about how the Son of Man must suffer, die, and rise again before entering into his glory. Now, put all this together because it appears that something like this happened. Jesus knew that God's plan for justice included a mysterious link between the suffering of God's people, the resurrection, and the final judgment. And at some point, I don't know when, Jesus realized that he was the mysterious link that brought them all together. Here's what I mean. Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. That means Jesus is both God and God's people simultaneously. And therefore, when Jesus went upon the cross, Jesus was taking upon himself the suffering of God's people that had to happen. He voluntarily became in his person the epicenter of the story of the shattering of the power of the holy people. In other words, he suffered as an innocent victim of the uh, coercive, autonomous human power that has raged against God for all time. But that's not it. He also voluntarily took upon himself not just the story of the suffering of the innocent, but also the guilt of those who have perpetrated evil, which, by the way, is all of us. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 53 says that God's servant will be, quote, numbered with the transgressors. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus died. When Jesus was on the cross, he was identifying uh, himself with the guilty, though he was not personally guilty, and he suffered the judgment that they deserved. And if you put it all together, when Jesus died and then rose again, what happened was the shattering of the power of the people of God and God's final judgment against evil and sin and the resurrection in the end all came together in one place and in one person. And that means this, God the Father planned the triumph of justice, but God the Son executed that plan when he, wrote, when he died and rose again in such a way that he opened up the door both for God's justice uh, to be fully uh, exercised and for the guilty to be pardoned and reconciled, which means that the seeds of mercy were there in the beginning all along. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for the enemies of God so that there is no need for us to face that eternal contempt though we almost embrace Christ to find our salvation. 
But then there's one more thing. We've got the Father's plan for the triumph of justice. We've got the Son executing that plan in such a way uh, that mercy is revealed to have been there from the beginning. But then finally, God the Holy Spirit empowers us to live wisely now in light of God's plan. Look at verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right. Um, the book of Daniel wants us to see that God has a plan for justice. Jesus shows us that plan and how mercy is in it. But at the same time, Daniel is super realistic. And he knows that we are living right now in the middle of the story. So that many of us, just like Daniel, will live the whole of our lives in a season of history where it looks like maybe God's plan isn't coming true. Many of us will live all of our lives in seasons of history that look like maybe coercive human power really carries the day in the end. And therefore, the book of Daniel comes to us and says, no, no, don't buy that idea for a moment. Live wisely now, which means live in the present in light of God's future. And as you live in the present, in light of God's future, invite everyone you can around you to join you in that path. Turn many to righteousness. Now, how can we possibly do that? Well, we're not alone. God is always giving himself. God the Father gives the Son. God the Father also gives us his Spirit. And that means that God the Holy Spirit comes to us empowers us so that we're able to see the truth of who Jesus is. We become captivated by who Jesus is. We become captivated by Jesus as he presents himself in scripture. We find that Jesus is true and therefore trustworthy. And then the spirit enables us to trust Jesus and then love Jesus and that love produces a loyalty to Jesus such that we become more loyal to Jesus than we are to anything else in this world, include even to our own selves. And when we are empowered in that way, we'll be able to see that the truth of Jesus is more compelling than the prevailing ideas of the culture around us. And we'll be motivated to live differently. But not only can we live differently, we can become a blessing to the people around us because we can witness to others and we can say, hey, come and join us. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen the beauty of Jesus Christ? Have you seen how he is the embodiment of justice and also of mercy? Have you seen how he loves us? Have you seen his sacrifice for us? Can you see the beauty of a life lived in loyalty to a God who has given himself in such a manner? Oh, come, won't you join us? And therefore, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to fulfill something of verse 3 by turning many to righteousness. And thereby, we get to look forward to shining like the stars. Can you see? God the Father has a beautiful plan for righteousness. It'll win in the end. God the Son has already rolled that plan out when he died and rose again in such a way that you can be sure the resurrection is coming. And that God's judgment is true and that there is a door of pardon for you and for me. And God, the Holy Spirit, fills us so that we're captivated with Jesus and we're empowered to witness to him and to live wisely now in light of the future 
despite notable reasons and the circumstance around us to do otherwise. So look at God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He has given all things for you. Live wisely, trusting him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.